0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Rancho Gordo. Growing the best and most interesting heirloom beans available. Learn more at ranchogordo.com. This week on Meet and 3, it's all about screens. We're diving into the world of TV, computers, and even VR to figure out how food consumption is shifted by a digital lens. Every course talks about a different topic within the Asian American identity through a very personal lens. And the three courses that are
2: paired with VR, in it you're seeing a brushstroke by brushstroke recreation of the dish that you're about to eat.
3: Most of us in the world live in urban areas. And so how much is the city already accidentally providing its residents? And how much more could it provide if um, we just made a priority?
1: Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts.
4: So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The devil
5: runs his groove. Welcome back to The Speakeasy. I'm Damon Bolte.
3: My name is Southern Teague.
4: And I'm Greg Benson. Gentlemen. Hey. What's going on?
3: <laughs> oh, man. Uh, well, we're still uh, in the midst of the pandemic, uh, and I am moving. Uh, not, not necessarily by choice.
5: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you've talked about moving on the show so much, and you know, everyone in the world listens to the show, so surely your landlord <laughs> found out.
3: <laughs> uh, Secrets out, man. And
5: was mad at you for not giving your notice.
3: Yeah, Uh, yeah, being evicted and sued for back rent and all that good stuff. But, you know, I feel uh, I'm not alone. Um, I feel that, uh, you know, the threat that he keeps uh, pointing at me is you'll have an eviction on your record. And I'm like, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, especially here in the city, are going to have that same thing. It's not really going to be a factor anymore. Uh, Exactly. I think Greg said off air, like if everybody's fucked, then nobody's fucked. (laughs) Exactly.
4: It's the great equalizer, man.
3: Yeah, levels totally. the field, levels the field. However, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to Damon Bolty this situation and be a bright sider and say the apartment <laughs> that, we're, that we're hopefully moving <laughs> the apartment that we hopefully moving into is easily ten times better than the apartment I live in right now. It is literally three times the size, plus it has a, an equally sized uh, private backyard. Um, Holy shit! Yeah, so you know, this uh, this whole situation may be somehow strangely for the better. Um, so, you know, though it's uncomfortable and the timing isn't good, I don't, I'm not, you know, super excited to, to, you know, have movers and, and all that sort of situation going on during COVID, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get it packed up as tightly as we can and everybody will wear masks and I guess we'll get out of Dodge.
5: Yeah, man. So you're saying, uh, yeah. there's room for a hot tub, huh?
3: There actually is Damon, uh, yeah. we can hot tub this situation right up. Uh, and believe it or not, strangely that you would bring that up. A friend of mine and yours I think <laughs> I think you know Carter uh, uh, he's moving out of his place because his building got sold so he has to move out but he has one of those semi-permanent semi portable uh, hot tubs and the place he's moving into has no place for it so there might be a deal struck here
5: <laughs> there you go
3: <laughs> so, so what you're bidders. saying is like Yes. The
4: next three months of the speakeasy are just going to have like a low bubbling sound underneath yeah. of it as we're recording.
3: I mean, you know, if all goes well, Greg, that's the idea. Uh, Damon, fill us in on, on the fires and the situation there on the West Coast.
5: Oh, my God. I'm, I'm like the weatherman now. Um, so, like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so last on the ones
3: with Damon Volte.
5: <laughs> exactly. So, last week, uh, the sky was uh, deep dark, burnt orange, literally burnt orange, right. um, it, and you couldn't see the sun. You barely see it. Uh, today, it's blue, and you can see the sun enough to where it, when you stare at it, it burns your eyes. So it's doing what it's supposed to be doing. Um, <laughs> all right, well, so that's an improvement. Know, after a week of staring at it, trying to find it, now it's uh, back to su- whatever normal is, I guess. But uh, yeah, it sounds like all the smoke has since not dissipated, but moved over to the East Coast. Uh, and so you're enjoying some of what we had last week.
4: Yeah. Well, I I went for a bike ride on the west side yesterday, and I was watching the sunset over the Palisades. And, you know, I mean, none of none of the east coasters on this podcast are uh, the people that you want to ask about whether or not the sky looks a certain reddish color. Uh, yeah. We will not <laughs> be able to tell you with any accuracy. Um, but, you know, I do remember kind of watching the sunset, and I didn't think wow that's red because that's not a thought I've ever had what I did think was wow that looks like Star Wars and I thought it was just weird clouds or smog or something but it was just a very extra menacing hue and now today it's still kind of here and I'm talking to you put it together I was like oh yeah it's what was happening over there it's over here now
3: yeah unbelievable that there's so much volume of smoke uh, emanating from the west coast that it's it's making it hazy here in New York City and and the whole eastern seaboard so it's Really uh, yeah. you know, nerve wracking for us to, to be thinking about you over there, and i you know I want to make sure you're safe and staying healthy.
5: Thanks, man. Yeah, the, the whole West Coast is on fire right now, but you know we're we're remaining uh, safe and uh, and you know as positive as possible. Um, hopefully, you know, hopefully it gets taken care of soon. But yeah, it's pretty crazy, man. Uh, I I'm mostly worried about you know the the fact that. You know the air quality is you, you kind of like you expect california to be the place where you do all your outdoor activities and get a little healthier and then it's like we can't go outside anymore right. uh so.
3: suddenly suddenly the healthy outdoors are a menacing <laughs> unhealthy place to be Yeah,
5: <laughs> even with a mask you know um but yeah that's that's where we're at uh how about you greg what's going on
4: um well yeah i mean i've been uh doing pretty much more of the same. I finally got sprung from Cuomo teen earlier this week, which is why I've just been like tearing around town. I was saying this early on in quarantine, but like I feel like without a large number of places where I can just kind of go and walk to and be like, oh, I feel like going to here or there, I've been starting to feel like one of those extra large dogs that has to be walked like three times a day or they're going to tear (laughs) up your furniture. So... Being, being stuck in my apartment for a couple of weeks wasn't uh, fun. It was necessary, but it wasn't fun. So I've just been rolling all over town. Um, it did give me a chance to work on uh, a new project that I've taken on. I've been a little coy about it here on the show. But uh, at some point this summer, I looked at my life and I was like, you know, Producing two podcasts about drinking just isn't enough, Uh, so I (laughs) took on a a really awesome third project, uh, which launched yesterday. It's a a new podcast called The Right to Drink, and we are super fortunate enough to have the host of that podcast in the studio with us today. So please welcome uh, Jarrett Dieterle of the R Street Institute. He uh, he runs drinksreform.org, and as of yesterday, he is the author of Give Me Liberty and Give Me a Drink and the host of the right to drink the new podcast. Welcome man. Good to have you.
2: Yeah. Welcome. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm uh, excited to be here a long-time listener, so it's fun to chat
4: with you all. Thanks man. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um so yeah, I mean I you and I have been working on this thing for what, a, a couple, is it a couple months now? I don't know. What What is the point yeah, of trying to it, figure out how long things have been going on anymore?
3: Yeah, time Forced is meaningless. Time.
4: Yeah.
2: <laughs> it, would, but, probably it probably would have helped all of our sanity if it would have been a couple months. I think it was more like one, <laughs> one,
4: one in a week or so, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking on it, I was like, yeah, well, we, about halfway into this eternity we're all living through, we started working on this. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess the, the first one launched yesterday. So did you... Do anything to to celebrate that and the release of your book?
2: Yeah, yesterday was a uh, it was weird. So it kind of had this date circled on my calendar. Where uh, you know for for a while I've known that uh, that my book uh, cocktail book was coming out um, on the fifteenth, and then uh, in the last couple months, as you said, we, we got this podcast going on and uh, it was weird. It was kind of like this big momentous, uh, day and, uh, kind of wait for it to arrive. my, my wife actually is, is my, uh, my book agent. So she warned me this would happen, but it's a little anticlimactic when it finally gets to the day, you like expect like some explosion to go off or something somewhere. And like this to be like dramatic confetti, like sprayed everywhere. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, so that no, was good. I had a bunch of people reach out about it, had a little launch event for, uh, for the book, and got to um, uh, go out do a little uh, outdoor uh, uh, dining at, at one of our spots here in Richmond. That's able to open at reduced capacity with with my wife, and and so that that was fun to be able to. Uh, to do that but uh, also weirdly anticlimactic just because i think i've had this dang date circled for so long <laughs> in my calendar and i i don't know i expected fireworks or something but it was, so it was still good
4: you didn't shake up a bunch of champagne and spray it all around your house like it's like it's like you know the <laughs> formula one race car winner yeah
2: yeah, yeah I, no I mean, well, so the the bottle we opened was actually a uh not champagne. It was a uh, Foggy Ridge uh, cider from uh, uh, Diane uh, Flint. It was her actually last kind of batch of cider before she hung up the uh, uh, the cleats, so to speak, and got out of cider and went back into apple grow. And So it was this really like awesome bottle of, of, of hard cider, and, and we've been saving it for this. So I wasn't going to shake that up because I don't want to waste any of other- it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well,
5: talk, talk a little bit about how. Full, I just want to throw in there full disclosure. <laughs> I. I blast off a, a bottle of champagne every day, every time we do the Speakeasy radio show. So uh, <laughs> they're all they're all victories every week. But, uh, you know, I was wondering about like the, uh, so you were saying that uh, Virginia is open at a limited capacity. So that's indoors, right? Because like we talked with someone uh, about two months ago that was saying that it's pretty much, Virginia pretty wide open, right? As far as like the dining outside thing yeah. goes, correct?
2: Yeah, yeah. G- compared to some states, that uh, that's definitely true. Um, yeah, we we uh, outdoors been for a while, and then there's reduced capacity uh, indoor here in, in uh, Virginia as well, yeah. right?
3: Gotcha. Um, yeah, we're about to move into that phase here in New York, and I'm still pretty nervous about it. Frankly, we, I think we can talk about that as we go. But yeah. uh, Jared, I, I want to hear a little bit more about your book launch. You know, um, I've had a couple of those, and and they are strangely anticlimactic normally. Uh, how did it go to have your um, launch event be via Zoom? Because you couldn't do something in person due to the pandemic.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that was probably part of what contributed to the, uh, a little bit anticlimactic. Just, just because yeah, I kind of had this vision of, you know, family, friends, you know, connections being at uh at some kind of a uh, event together kind of celebrating in in person and and since it's a book about drinks being able to have have some drinks ideally right. <laughs> um so yeah the the virtual uh, event was fine I, I had a couple of uh, uh more uh elderly um uh you know friends and family that had a little bit of trouble getting <laughs> getting onto the uh, actual login thing which i think is par for the course right now with uh, virtual events um uh, but but you know it was recorded and it was fun we made the best of it uh, that's why we uh ended up uh having uh, uh Christine uh, Riggleman uh, one of my uh friends that works uh, actually owns a distillery is a master distiller in Virginia and having her aboard was fun because she was able to uh talk a little bit about what her distillery has been been doing with everything going on so uh it, we made it fun the audience was engaged asking questions so we encouraged people to bring along a, a cocktail um and and so yeah it was, it was different there's no question about it I'm not going to sit here and say that it was the same exact thing as having a, a live uh, event somewhere but uh, we, we made the best of it, I guess. And that, that's kind of what what's necessary to do. And in the grand scheme of life, you know, if the biggest problem that I have this year is that my book launch was virtual, then
3: I'm doing pretty well. Right. I mean, that's, you know, we're all doing the best we can with what we have. Um, so you are a senior fellow at the R Street Institute, which is a think tank uh, where you study alcohol policy. And that's kind of what your book is about. Talk about you and what that means and what that is. Like, what is what's what's kind of your grind every day?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I initially got into it from the policy angle of it. I, I wanted to research and write and think about public policy and how to improve it. And I also liked uh, drinks and, and started, you know, learning more and more about cocktails and reading about it and, uh, and beer as well. And uh, realized I could combine these two things and, uh, in my opinion, have, you know, maybe the coolest, coolest job in America, at least uh, <laughs> at least for a policy job. So uh, alcohol is a, a really unique area of the legal system to study as you guys well know living it um it, it is full of quirky bizarre uh, goofy laws that uh
3: sometimes make sense and a lot of times don't make sense right and, and that's because that's because yeah. post prohibition the federal government decided to allow every state to make its own laws right yeah, yeah, no, it's a hundred percent it. So we, yeah, that, so we come yeah. up with this fucking scrambled egg mess that you can't, <laughs> un, you know, you can't unscramble an egg. That's the problem.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, it's exactly right. Yeah, no, everyone kind of goes down to the bar, right? I'm sure at least I've done this before. You know, December five, you know, repeal day, you know, celebrate. Uh, back when we all could go to the bar, um, and and you know, celebrate that. But what people don't realize is like none of like the temperance forces like just went away. You know, on December fifth, nineteen thirty three, they still existed and just started lobbying state governments and local governments and as you said it ended up with this uh, hodgepodge you know stew of of 50 different uh, uh, laws and and jurisdictions and then all the local county guys have a lot of power too so it's even more than that it's thousands really and it just makes things incredibly difficult. So it's an area that's easy to study and try to, um, uh, talk about how it could be made more straightforward for, uh, for producers mostly. Um, but also for consumers at the end of the day, because, you know, we're all trying to get, uh, the product of a to the hands of the consumer at point B and it's not as straightforward as it should be for the alcohol marketplace.
4: <laughs> yeah. I mean, you would think it would be kind of, uh, you know, a uh, uh, It's one of those things you look at and you're like, this should be simple. One person makes it, another person wants to buy it. How much more complicated could it be? But I mean, it's really once you start peeling back the layers of it that it gets, you know, I don't know. I have this weird and let me know if you share this, because obviously, you know, your your career is to look at uh, all of these weird alcohol laws and write about them. And I feel like you can most of the time when you're doing that. The thesis is like why is this this way why have we done this this way and why has it not changed because it very obviously makes no sense on its face and sometimes when i look for these things i almost feel like i'm exploring some sort of like undiscovered island and like you know i come around the corner and there's this weird tree that's growing this absurd law that makes no sense that i've never seen before and a part of me is like taken aback by it and you know obviously I look at it I'm like well that shouldn't be but there's also a part of me that's like how did how did this get here how did we come about this and it's an almost perverse appreciation of it like is that does that sort of happen to you when you're doing your job yeah
2: yeah no it's kind of a um yeah it's a weirdly uh uh, beautiful mess. I mean, it, it's really terrible that it, that it's like what it is, but it really uh, it, it's entertaining, I guess, you know, when you see things like Indiana, which, you know, allows gas stations to sell beer, but it, it can't be put in a refrigerator it has to be warm beer. And you're just like, man, like how, like if I sat down for a hundred years in a room and did nothing about, but thinking about retailing <laughs> alcohol laws for Indiana, like I would not have come up with that distinction. And it, and it just, you know, it, or in Utah with, with the infamous Zion, curtain there and bartenders having to um mix drinks behind a, a barrier it's like you know i just never would have thought of that like if you <laughs> i think no one would have really and so it definitely has a uh, almost well, like a trivia
3: element. Did. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i know i know I mean, and in, a lot of times I mean, it
2: was people in 1930s that thought of it so <laughs>
3: i mean that's what i'm thinking right you said the zion curtain i can see that that's anytime that's not a piece of technology but like uh, your beer can't be refrigerated was refrigeration a thing <laughs> right <know>? like <laughs> right. common common enough that they could say like well don't put it in the fridge uh, yeah like, yeah
2: it's no that's exactly right yeah what What happens obviously you're right so no there's no refrigeration back in the day and then refrigeration becomes a thing and then they'll kind of reform it so like you know certain uh, licensees and liquor stores in a state like indiana they can refrigerate it but, you know, gas stations can't and then eventually they'll change it a little bit again and they can refrigerate wine, white wine now, but not beer. And so it's just like a, it, it, it's trying to update the stuff for, you know, modern life and technology and morals in some cases with, uh, with labels on, on, uh, on bottles and what you can say and not say about, about a product. So yeah, it's just, it's exactly that. It's just like trying to update this and it's always done in a piecemeal fashion that then when you look at how the sausage, you know, is made at the end of the at the end of the assembly line and it just looks totally squirrely
5: yeah it's funny because like i'm from oklahoma and I, I would go to the liquor store to get like your higher abv beers right yeah you couldn't everything else the 3.2 you know you in that yes. you could buy cold in a gas station where you are getting gas to drive right but if i wanted to get a higher abv beer in a liquor store like say i just wanted like a guinness or whatever it might be newcastle what and it's unrefrigerated because maybe they don't want you drinking it immediately. But Mm. at the same purchase of making a bottle of mezcal, which I don't refrigerate and I can drink that straight (laughs) from the bottle. So it's like, (laughs) what's the point? You know?
2: Yeah, no, yeah. The the weak beer laws, the three point tours are a a great example. I think there's only one left now. It's uh, Minnesota, but Uh, It's funny, it's an example of them trying to update stuff for reality, right? I mean, we have these Imperial IPAs that are, you know, just, you know, high ABV hot bombs. And, you know, you can't sell those in some states uh, at at certain stores. And so they've, they've made this big hullabaloo about going and updating that. And then, like, they're raising it to, like, you know, from... 3.2 3.2 to 4.5 and it's just like, okay <laughs> like it's still a massive part of the beer market that's getting locked out there the way that uh, beer is 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 changing um and, and so yeah everything's just a fight everything's like a struggle to update this area of the law that's been so ossified for almost going on a century now
4: what also i mean part of it seems to me the thing that that always perplexes and amuses me is the fact that you know these laws are written by people that very you know they are to to give them as as much credit as i feel like giving them in this particular moment they are trying to keep people safe and that is a thing that you know we pay our lawmakers to do but they very clearly don't have a lot of experience with you know definitely not making this stuff and sometimes you know it seems like you look at these laws like have any of these people ever actually like drank a beer like are they totally alien to this experience it makes me think of now you know when i go to the bar and if i you know want to grab a table outside and a beer the bartender has to serve me half a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and every time Mm -hmm. it just sits there on the table and i look at it and i think to myself yes that is the thin line between responsible drinking and (laughs) anarchy right there (laughs) peanut (laughs) butter and jelly and wonder bread thank god it's there yeah that's (laughs) keeping us from the chaos um seems
3: a good point to take a quick break but when we come back we'd love to dig a little bit deeper in on what you think maybe policies that might change due to covid uh that might remain permanent Uh, we've already seen some changes that we think are uh, you know, uh, just here to be a band-aid, but maybe they'll become permanent. And then, definitely, we want to talk more about your book and what you do. So, stay tuned to the Speakeasy, everybody. We'll be right back.
1: This episode is brought to you by Rancho Gordo. Over the past 19 years, Rancho Gordo has led the revival of heirloom beans taking the lowly bean from a healthy but neglected member of the vegetable family to a near superstar status ingredient. From growing the best and most interesting beans available to making sure all crops are fresh and a pleasure to cook with, Rancho Gordo's mission is to encourage cooks to experience and enjoy the unique flavors of heirloom beans. Rancho Gordo produces nearly 30 varieties of heirloom beans and lentils, as well as corn, grains, chilies, and other cooking ingredients. You can learn more at RanchoGordo.com. That's R A N C H O G O R D O.com.
4: And we're back. You were listening to the speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. Uh, we are talking with Jarrett Dieterly, who is the uh, editor in chief of DrinksReform.org. Do I have that right? Yeah,
2: yeah, um, I guess, yeah, any kind of editor title. It's a one-man site, so I don't get too excited here, yeah. (laughs) Editor-in-chief, chief
4: chief writer, coffee boy, all of that. Right, yep. Um, And uh, also the author of a new book, Give Me Liberty and Give Me a Drink, and a new podcast, The Right to Drink. Uh, And before the break, we were talking about um, how weird alcohol laws had been in this country from – The repeal of prohibition on December 5th, 1933, all the way up to, let's say, mid March of 2020. And now it seems like everything is sort of in flux. Some states are going one way and getting way more permissive. Some states are going the other way and getting way more restrictive. And we want to talk a little bit about what that looks like from the policy side and whether or not you think some of these. Changes and updates that we're seeing might actually become permanent down the line. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's a million dollar question, is uh, is what what becomes permanentized here? But but yeah, it is weird. There's this as we've said, this area of the law that has not changed much, and all of a sudden, uh, COVID happens, and it was like this like great bonfire of of the regulations, almost where <laughs> everything was just like changing so fast. Uh, my life for a couple weeks was crazy, trying to keep up on all of it, and it's still hard, frankly, but. But yeah, the thing that, that of course uh, we've all seen is is the to-go uh, cocktails, alcohol, and, and delivery uh, is just uh, uh, take it off. And I think it's it's thirty-five or something, thirty-three, thirty-five states have some version of to-go uh, alcohol now that, that didn't before, um, and almost all of them are doing it, you know, temporarily. But there's already been. Couple states, Iowa, uh, the first in the nation uh, uh, to go alcohol or to go yeah, cocktail. Iowa
3: would lead that that
2: back? <laughs> I know, I know. That's what's wild about alcohol. Like it has nothing to do with like you know, uh, red state, blue state, or like any of that kind of stuff. It's just places that either are way behind the times or like are tremendously you know forward thinking on it. It just totally surprises you more more times than it doesn't. But but yeah, it, it's been the big change, and, and it's going to be. I, I think there was going to already be this change just because everyone's used to getting things delivered to their door already pretty much in the economy and in and, and some places at least it's harder to do that with, with alcohol in some states you, you can't really and and so then COVID happens and all of a sudden it, it's happening. And I, just, I feel like it's going to be really hard to put that toothpaste back in the tube. I just, I just feel like consumers are going to, once they get that, are going to say, hey, you know, it's pretty convenient. Like, I don't have to hop in the car uh, after I've had a couple of drinks at the, at the barbecue to, to get another 24-pack uh, you know, of beer. I can, I can just get that delivered to me or I can have another round of margaritas dropped off.
3: So Well, not to mention, know. I feel like the general consumer in America who travels from state to state is just confused already. So to now have this kind of open up and then and then try and repeal and shut some of it back down, I think the consumer would just be tearing their hair out.
5: Yeah,
2: yeah, no, I, I think that's true. Yeah. People I think will more and more want uh some, some consistency because it's it's so so darn inconsistent. And yeah, you know, obviously it'll be interest interesting. I don't think every uh you know, you guys would know better than I would. I don't think every restaurant uh in the world or bar of the world's going to want maybe to to do it to go uh format, but I think the option will be there probably in, in more more states when uh when all this is said and done.
5: Yeah. I think uh, you know, like back in April we heard uh, that Michigan was going to allow some dog barking outside my window right now. Sorry about that. Is, is that
3: um, the dog?
5: No, it's, it's some other dog. Um, yeah, so back in April, Michigan announced that they were going to allow to go cocktails until 2025. I mean, right. that seems like a, a long stretch of time to say we're going to do this for five years and then take it away. I mean, or, is that to. Are we to predict that that's just something they're going to try for a while, and then eventually they're going to be like, "Yeah, well, this works, so let's continue doing this."
2: Yeah, I, I don't know. I've seen a couple states that have done these like extensions to 2023, 2025. I, I actually submitted some uh, written testimony for the for the Michigan one you referenced and I, I, it just didn't make any sense to me. I was like, you know, just make this permanent. Why are you, what's like five years going to do? I mean, I I could understand right. almost like an experiment for like six months or something to see if this works, but like a five-year experiment and then all of a sudden you're going to tell all the residents of Michigan that this thing they've been doing for five years they're not able to do anymore. So I'd, I feel like it'll just create more legislative busy work every five years they'll have to think about that again so yeah i i, I think that i think that it's it's a heavy down payment i guess towards it, permanency I, I i just think that maybe they don't want to make the lawmakers as we well know don't particularly like being uh, ambitious and uh, leaders sometimes so it's maybe a way to take a timid <laughs> step forward um yeah. but but start start paving the road towards permanency yeah but but i think i think more we're going to go permanent eventually when when this is done
3: I mean, to play devil's advocate here, I would think that if I were, say, a retailer, a liquor store owner, or or even that gas station that has beer, that I would be upset to know that people could just have stuff delivered from restaurants. Like, I foresee to-go cocktails remaining, maybe not just to like currently as the law uh, is opened up here in New York city as a bar, I can now sell you a bottle of of mezcal that Damon loves or a bottle of vermouth or or a bottle of wine, whatever it is I've got, I can sell to go. Uh, If, uh, if I'm doing delivery, I can also do that via delivery as long as we do a, a, you know, some kind of firewall that checks that you're 21 years old. Um, So that I would think would make like liquor stores pretty angry. But if I was saying I'm selling you a mezcal Negroni with vermouth in it, uh, the liquor stores would be like, yeah, that's cool, right? Yeah. So, so I, and I assume that, just like restaurants, I assume that liquor stores have, you know, some lobbying power and some some say in the matter.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, the Retailers Association uh, definitely does. And I think you're right. It, it That could be one distinction that people make is, is more, you know, cocktails, you know, mixed drink format. Yeah, restaurants, you know, do that and bars do that, but but liquor stores don't. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting. In some, some states, liquor stores can't, uh, you know, deliver uh, or, or ship to you either, you know, uh, uh, off premise uh, can't still can't uh, send you stuff. So um, I think that, uh definitely in places that's the case, there should be kind of a, probably a, across the board uh, a liberalization of it versus just, you know, picking one licensee because, again, you get into these things where one licensee is treated Way different. There's there's inherent differences as as you said uh, between the two. But but yeah, it would be interesting. I mean, it, I think even if, if restaurants were able to sell bottles of mezcal, it'd be interesting what that market would look like. I would assume that it would probably be for more rare ones that there, are, or at least things that are harder to find, maybe at your neighborhood liquor store. Um, I, I don't know if. You know, an absolute bottle of absolute vodka. You're, you know, probably still going to be bought at a, a liquor store. I would imagine. Um, sure, over, it's like, over it's like a restaurant. boutique.
3: It's like boutique, yeah, brands and things like that. I can completely understand that. Yeah, um, yeah. Let's talk a bit about your book. If I pick up your book, which I intend to do, what what am I going to learn? How am I going to feel? Yeah, well,
2: we tried to make it fun. I mean, I could have written some policy, you know, tome that no one no one would have read, um, and I didn't really think that was what, what, uh, what was helpful. So uh, we tried to make it fun and, and it basically has a, a one kind of bizarre, quirky, weird law from each state in the country. And and then a couple extras and, uh, matches that with a uh, cocktail recipe. Uh, uh, oftentimes the recipes inspired by, by the law. So, uh, for example, (laughs) in, in Washington state, uh, the distilleries can, uh, serve, uh, up, up to two ounces. When, when a visitor comes on site, they can't go uh, beyond that, even though, you know, breweries can serve and wineries can serve as, as much as they want. So in that case, for example, I made a, a cocktail with a 1.9999 repeating, uh, uh, whiskey uh, in it. And so I just try to have fun with it and just kind of poke, poke fun at kind of the nonsensicalness of it. Um, and talk about some of the history. Uh, so, and, and also, you know, profile some people that actually are, are living this and working, uh, uh, working in, in uh, the industry and, and been really affected by these laws. It's hurt their, their business. And uh, and also I even throw in some some fun profiles of famous American moonshiners. So it's, I think it's a fun time. I just try to you know keep it lighthearted, but also raise some awareness about it because I think that it's an important issue that has probably only gotten more important with, with COVID because people in, 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 in the industry right now are, are struggling and I, I want to help them. And I think this is not enough by itself to help them, but I, I think if some of these laws were liberalized to at least be part of the part of the puzzle
3: yeah absolutely do you have a a, a, you know a favorite obscure uh one that's in the book that that you want to share with us or or even one that's maybe not so obscure but you have some reasoning behind it
2: yeah yeah well one I mean mini bottles are always really fun, uh, so i, I reference uh, Louisiana a lot um, because everyone kind of uses them as, as anything goes state. Uh, up until two thousand and fourteen they didn 't really allow air, airline bottles uh, to be sold in the state. They finally lighted it and uh, believe it was two thousand and fourteen but they're they 're technically supposed to be twice as large as as the normal ones, so I think like a hundred milliliters instead of uh fifty milliliters. Um, and you know why I, I don't know. Mini bottles have their own special history that no, no, basically governments can't decide what to do with them, whether they love them or hate them. So that was a fun <laughs> one that I I got uh, Chris Hanna uh, down there to work with me on, uh, kind of trying to uh, uh, batch up a, a cocktail that could be uh, at least you know put in different kind of mini bottles and then uh, all smuggled on board with you on the plane and then, uh, <laughs> enjoying it uh, up there. So uh, yeah, that's just uh, you know a fun. Example, I love that one because uh, he helped me out with it, and uh, and you know, again, it just it, it highlights that so you don't know where these goofy laws are coming from. You know, places you would never associate with something bizarre like that
3: uh, have something like that. So. Right. I mean, speaking of the mini bottles, I I, I remember what, what year did it end in South Carolina where they yeah they only served mini bottles at bars. You you would order a Jack and Coke, and you'd get a mini bottle of Jack and a half glass of Coke, and you had to crack it and pour it yourself. I recall
2: yeah that 's the the most famous example of all time in South Carolina, yeah, in thousand and six I think is when they finally scrapped that uh, but but yeah it it 's funny Wayne Curtis wrote a really funny article for imbibe uh, three or four years ago where he had <laughs> listed like you know just what I said all the different states and some of them thought that mini bottles were uh you know bad because it could lead to maybe more public drunkenness if people could sneak them like in their coat pocket and stuff versus like a big bottle, and then like other state governments were, and local governments are like, well, actually, they're good because there's less alcohol in them, so you can't drink as much at one time. And it just led to this, you know, governments treating them in all different kinds of ways. Some loved them uh, and some hated them. So it, it, it's uh, a microcosm, I guess, of, uh, of, of the greater uh, stuff around and uncertainty around alcohol loss. I mean, my, that-
3: my assumption with mini bottles and especially with that South Carolina example is that I just assumed follow the money they're being able to tax every single drop right there they're, sure. they're not missing a dime on on, on doing that right and they're and they're being able to control but the flip side is you know thank god did it ended in 2006 because if you went in there and you wanted a a cocktail that had more than one spirit in there you know you're looking at you know 60 bucks um yeah. You know, if you, you get, you know, you're 21 years old and you want to go in and just get a, I don't know, something like a B52 for your friends, like you got to have all these mini bottles on the bar. Uh, yeah. And also yeah. just the environmental impact seems ludicrous to me. Oh,
2: yeah. Yeah. Well, not only that, but I mean, a lot of the companies that are they're making mini bottles, you know, it's not necessarily some, you know, small batch uh, whiskey from, you know, uh, uh, upstate New York or something. It, it's obviously the big guys, right? So if you're trying to do a particular drink or have a particular mezcal or something in it, it's not, you know, 100% the that they would be making just mini bottles for South Carolina. So yeah, I think you're right that it's good that went by the wayside what it did, because I don't think it would be viable
4: anymore. One, yeah,
5: of, my, one of my favorite ones is uh, is Ohio because there's and maybe Jared you can like speak more to this because I'm gonna I'm gonna mess this one up, uh, <laughs> as I often do when it comes to numbers. But um, in Ohio there's a certain cap on what's considered beer and wine as opposed to uh, spirits right so it's I think it's 20% alcohol up to up. it's usually up to 20% in most states but then 20% is included in the beer and wine category so for instance Kahlua is 20% alcohol so it would fall into the beer and wine category so in Ohio if you get Kahlua it's 21.5% alcohol because otherwise it would be sold in the beer and wine places like for instance like gas stations Uh <laughs> Wow. Wait, so Man, this
2: to... showed I even I learned something today. I had not, wait, I had wait. not actually so, heard
3: that one. So the differentiation is is A B V, whereas here in New York we do have something similar to that. If you have a beer and wine license, you can't sell uh obviously spirits, but you can sell some things that are higher in A B V, but they have to be fermented, not distilled, is the d- distinction here, right? I mean here we yeah. go. This is, here we are already. Yeah. Some somewhat yeah. experts on the air, and we're yeah. we're already
5: confused. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I well,
2: it, there's a ton of states do stuff like this. I hadn't heard those two examples. I mean, it they all yeah. They, they, there's legion examples of states that and that define all, all the different you know categories of, of alcohol differently. One uh, fun one that that I do know, West Virginia originally after prohibition, they only allowed quote unquote non intoxicating beer, which was essentially the weak beer that, that we talked about. Um, but then over time, their answer to that was just to keep redefining non-intoxicating beer, <laughs> it's now up to like 12% ABV, which anyone that <laughs> has 12% ABV beer is going to know is pretty dang intoxicating. Um, and they, but still under the state code, like if you look it up, it's still, you're only allowed to serve non-intoxicating beer. In West Virginia, it just happens to mean basically all beer. So yeah, there, there's tons of examples of states that are trying to define different categories of, of alcohol and that can uh, affect, as you just said, where, where it's actually sold.
3: I mean, I'm not super proud of it, but when I lived in New Orleans, we used to literally say, beer doesn't count. It <laughs> <laughs> sounds like New Orleans, yeah. I mean, you'd say, I, I, went, out I, had, I went out and I had five, uh, you know, five old fashions and uh, and ten beers, but the beers don't count, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, I love that. Here's
5: what you drink while you're trying to figure out what cocktail you're going to have.
3: <laughs> exactly.
5: It's <laughs> a placeholder,
3: yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so you and Greg together have uh, worked on this new project uh the right to drink. It's a new five episode narrative style podcast about drinking and everything that gets in the way of that, uh, these laws that you've, uh, you know, been working on policy for, uh, talk about the show guys.
2: Yeah. I'm sure Greg's got some, uh, some thoughts about it. Um, it's been awesome to, to work with him. at Uh, a little bit intimidating though, you know, since he, he's, uh, works with, with you guys. And then also his, uh, uh, wonderful, uh, uh, podcast, uh, uh, back bar, I guess is, is the, the name you're going to be using for it now, uh, Greg, Mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, just, just kind of listening to that and then being like, Oh man, like I'm expected to have something that's remotely as good as this, uh, was a little intimidating, but, but it was fun. It, 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 we basically, it's a little bit of a preview kind of for the book. And so we kind of pick a, a, a different category or a different issue, like whether it's, shipping laws or uh, happy hour rules or um, things that, you know, might raise the price of, of your cocktail, uh, you know, compliance cost rules and uh, do it kind of narrative style, but then uh, splice in uh, uh, some clips from, from interviews of, of people. We try to kind of pair like one legal regulatory expert uh, per episode with one person that actually is, you know, a distiller or a brewer or, or a bartender. Um, and, and, you know, again, just trying to make it accessible and fun for people. We're not trying to make it so wonky that no one's going to understand it. We want to kind of raise awareness about, about what's going on out there. But, but yeah, there's been a lot of fun for me. It might be, it might be less fun for Greg since he has to no, take all been, the,
4: <laughs> it's been a ton of fun, man. And I mean, like this is, uh, when you and I were first sort of talking when we were kind of, uh, you know, like I, f- I feel like as a freelancer, like there's no, Better analogy for like oh do I want to work with this person on this project than like being on a first date where you're sort of like trying to you know put your your best foot forward and being like well this is this is what I have to bring to the table but also like so could the then what do you, and what is where do you see this going like what do you bring to the table and I was fascinated because you had a very specific vision for what This show is going to be, which is cool and and necessary, because in the last six months, like people know that I do podcasts and people, lots of people have come up to me and said, hey, I'm thinking about starting a podcast. And I say, awesome. What's your show about? And they're like, well, it's about drinks or Frisbee or politics. And I'm like, I I always tell them, it's like there are I, I think I last checked it in. February or January of this year we were closing in on a million different podcasts on Apple and I'm sure that during the pandemic we have just blasted past that threshold because everybody wants to start a podcast because you know we are social creatures and we like to talk and learn things and experience each other's viewpoints and if we can't do that in person online is the next best thing so podcasts are especially because the barrier to entry is so low, are a very natural fit. But to make a show good, it has to be about something that somebody else isn't talking about. And, you know, the the cool thing about working on this show is that it's about, you know, there. I'm sure it's not the first show that's about alcohol legislation, but it's the only show that I've heard that's about, um, you know, this is what this law is. This is, it sounds weird, right? It is. This is why it's weird. This is what is causing that. And this is how we can make it better. Um, and in in the pilot, which is out now, we talked to a great distiller from, we, we talked to, you talked to a great distiller from Virginia, uh, Christine Riggleman. And, you know, I grew up in Virginia. I went to college in Virginia. I thought I knew Virginia alcohol laws pretty well, but you made the point that in that state you can only sell alcohol at a state-run store and if you're a distillery and you want to sell your products that means you technically have to be a state-run store and I didn't put that together and there are all these tiny little rules that don't make any sense and they exist because nobody really notices them except the people that have to deal with them on a daily basis to run their business and their lives you know and that's what's kind of that's that's what's been cool about working on this project
2: yeah, no, 100%. Yeah, it's try to bring those stories to, to life. And, you know, I mean, in Virginia, I don't think people realize if, if the ABC store network doesn't want to carry your product as a distillery, then your products, you know, in, in the private retailing, you know, uh, marketplace, you could then go to another store, theoretically, right, and try to pitch them on it. But in Virginia, you're locked out of the entire market for getting in liquor stores. And it can be almost a death knell, essentially, for, for some of the distilleries. And, and that, that's actually happens. Christine talked about she's kind of an advisor to other distillers here. And, and they come to her, you know, just in tears sometimes being like, you know, these three products, They, if it's a whiskey, it was maybe one they were aging for three or four or five years and uh, it, it, didn't get, it didn't get accepted because they only can uh, warehouse and stock so many spirits in, in these stores. And so that locks them out of the market. What, where do they go from then? I mean, they can have on-premise sales, but it's not very big right now. Um, until recently, they didn't have uh, uh, the ability to ship in state. They do temporarily right now because of COVID. So, yeah, that is, I, I want people to know that this is like a thing that's happening and it, it's something that that affects people's lives. You know, it it, it, it for me, it, it's something that, you know, I can study and find of interest and research and write about. But But for, you know, real people in the industry, it, it actually makes a difference on how much, you know, food potentially they could have on the table uh literally in in, in some cases so uh, especially right now again with with how uh, uh difficult things are so that, that yeah, was kind of the impetus behind it
3: yeah that example right there is is powerful <laughs> to me uh, you're saying that if i am a distillery uh making a product and i live in a control state and the control state decides not to pick up my product then i'm not selling in my own backyard yeah yeah, yeah. no exactly yeah and, and i mean just imagine and that and that's how you start any business starts in your own backyard you don't You don't start up and sell in other states and other countries. You start up and sell locally. That's just, that's powerfully shocking to me.
5: You know, I have an example of this. When I was working for Brooklyn Gin, we would go to Portland Cocktail Week, right? And Mm -hmm. we were in Oregon, a control state, right, for a little while. But then, you know, it was while the brand was starting out. So, you know, it was hard to grab as much traction as needed. You know, what can happen in these control states as far as what you're talking about, as far as the, Actual state picking up the product and selling it in the ABC pack stores and stuff like that is that this can be a seasonal thing, like for instance, like something like gin. You know, a lot of people might drink it in the summer. Uh, same with like agave spirits, right? So, seasonally, it might be something that's in stock at these stores. But if it's if it comes off the shelf or out of the system in those states, enough people can request it. To where finally the state will be like, all right, sure, we'll, we'll we'll pick this up, and then it'll be distributed again. But that could also be ineffective if it takes long enough through the whole season where you're wanting the product to get yep. put into the system. Then next thing you know, it's wintertime and everyone's on to whiskey or whatever. You know, like it's just kind of a crazy system. You know, it's yeah. very slow moving
2: it is yeah it, it it goes the other way too is, is 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 you all known and referenced i mean for uh, in ohio one of my uh uh, uh people that i bet and actually profile in the book richard reed he owns this, this really awesome gin bar like outside cleveland right i mean of all places a uh, very like rural kind of uh, or, or suburban area he owns this awesome uh, gin bar and he has 96 different gins there and i think to maybe people that that um aren't familiar with gin broads of bar uh, gin uh, bars abroad they might think that oh well that sounds like a lot but he uh, he's limited to those 96 and they're the ones that the state uh, of Ohio's warehouse um, houses uh, in their uh, in their uh, uh, control set up for uh, for the distribution level. And he literally can't, he can request some after that, but that doesn't mean they're going to listen to him. And a lot of the stuff that he wants is like these really obscure things that the average consumer is not going to buy a ton of, right? I mean, it's going to be different than like going down and uh, you know, pitching Bombay Sapphire. That's already carried. But this is something that you know might be from Spain that you know not a lot of people have heard of, but he wants to be able to uh, make a, a certain kind of drink in his, in his gin bar with it. And, and he hates it. He's like, why can I go to London and go to a gin bar that has Two thousand gins uh, and, and come back here, and I can't even have two hundred. So it really does limit the creativity and and also just the access to market for uh, both producers and also the the retail uh, bar restaurant level as well.
3: Yeah, that's the worst part to me is the access to market. Frankly, I feel like creativity comes from boundaries. So you know, there's True. a little bit there, but but I understand that you know in other countries it's kind of what we would consider sort of the wild west. If they want something, they can just go buy it or bring it or. Hell, a lot of places in Italy you can make your own stuff. Like, we can't do that here. Um, Man, fascinating conversation, but here we are at the end. Uh, We'll probably have to have you on again and talk more. Um, Pimp out your stuff a little bit. Talk about where we can get your book. Talk about your uh, uh, social media handles that we can can follow along with what you're doing and, and the podcast itself.
2: Yeah. No, I, again, appreciate you all, uh, having me on. Um, it, it's pretty easy. I, my book, give me liberty and give me a drink is uh, pretty much available through any independent, uh, major retailer that, that sells books, uh, easy to Google and, and find online. And same with, uh, with, uh, the right to drink podcast, you know, uh, Apple, Spotify, any place that you get your podcasts, uh, it's at, uh, I mean, appreciate you leaving, uh, reviews or, uh, or, or whatever, if anyone's out there listening and you can find me on, uh, uh, usually, uh, Twitter's I guess my my main social media platform is that's where policy people tend to all hang out and yell at each other. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, at Jarrett Dieterle, uh, my name, and uh, Instagram's the same thing, but just uh, Jarrett Dieterle. So yeah, no, any any of those places I'm I'm talking and thinking and uh, and 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 sometimes yelling about uh, crazy alcohol laws. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. Ye- yelling yelling into the internet void, uh, just so people get it uh, down pat. It's Jarrett J A R R E T T. Dieterle, d-i-e-t-e-r-l-e uh that's both on instagram and twitter uh the instagram one has a dot in between jared diederle right that's uh, it yeah yeah um man really really fascinating talk i'd love to yeah. keep going um but really really great to have you on the air and talk to us about this stuff and i'm, I'm gonna probably tune into to at least one episode of your show on my uh commute to work today so excited for beautiful. that beautiful yeah,
2: if it there's was. any problems with it, just uh, email
4: Greg. So, <laughs> <laughs> My email is J A R I E T T.
3: Well, thanks, everybody. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of The Speakeasy. I uh, hope you learned something. I hope you found something uh, to use in your life. Uh, uh, and uh, cheers, everybody. Great to have you on. Yep. Cheers.
4: So, you don't, don't shun the, the, devil, devil, the devil, devil with your rock and roll. Load. No. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul.
5: The devil runs is grooving them. Rhythm and blues that sound. It's gonna get you
3: started. The, air. the speakeasy is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10 year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter.